One of the things that's changing, to get back to your question around the calculus of the cost, in the past, I think there was a slightly false sense of security that came from the idea that if we're a manufacturer and our email systems go down because of an attack, we can still make stuff. We can still keep our factory running. Yeah, maybe we're embarrassed and maybe we can't talk to our customers as easily as we could. And maybe, maybe there's some orders that don't make it to us as quickly as they should. But our primary operations on our factory floor are not going to be a, Im, impacted in our mind by that kind of an attack. And I think one of the things that's really changing is the bad guys figure that out too. And they're clearly starting to target operational technologies. You know, they're targeting specific machines on factory floors and they're targeting disrupting those machines because they know that that is so crucial. While at the same time, Industry 4.0 is forcing manufacturers to bring those assets together. They're, you know, we need connectivity between our factory floor and all of these data lakes and the cloud and other network assets that's going to make it important and possible for us to share data across a manufacturing enterprise because that's how digitization works and that's where the next revolution in efficiency and capability is going to come from but it really does increase your risks and your attack surfaces when you start to bring all those assets together welcome to another episode of Manian's Defenders Advantage podcast I am your host Luke McNamara joining me today for a special episode looking at the threat landscape for manufacturers in the manufacturing industry, I have Todd Bopel, Chief Operating Officer of the National Association of Manufacturers. Todd, how are you today? Great, Luke. Good to be with you. Well, I'm glad to have you here to help further explain what's happening in the manufacturing landscape right now. Uh, some of the concerns that you have amongst your, your member organizations, how they're thinking about cybersecurity, in the sort of changing environment, but maybe where it makes the most sense to start is a little bit about your background and your role at NAM and, and the mission of NAM as a, as a trade association. Sure. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So the NAM is the largest trade association serving the entire manufacturing industry in the United States. Our job is to lobby the federal government to make the U.S. a great place to invest in and to build manufacturing capacity. So that's what we do. We currently represent about 14,000 manufacturing entities that all make something in the United States. Many of them are headquartered here, but many of them are headquartered elsewhere in the world. And that's not really our concern. Our concern is to make sure that manufacturing in the U.S. still takes place and that the roughly 12 and a half, 12.8 million men and women that work in manufacturing continue to have those great jobs in this country. And so that's our mission and that's what we do. And we've been doing it since 1895. So we're also one of the oldest trade associations in the country. I joined the NAM about six or seven years ago as chief operating officer. My background, oddly enough, is pretty heavy in technology, which is one of the reasons I end up speaking on cybersecurity issues quite a bit. So I spent some time in retail point of sale technology and systems, and then I spent about a decade in fintech working in stock trading systems as a CIO and a COO uh, for a, a software company. And then I did about five years of consulting around technology and business sort of integrations and, and intersections which led me to the NAM as a consulting client and then eventually as their COO. I think one of the, the fascinating things about your organization is you get a window into what's happening in, in the landscape. What are the, the top concerns of your, your member organizations across a range of different issues? Of course, the one that we're going to talk about here today is cybersecurity. But sort of in your experience, having been at NAM and, and having, you know, interfacing constantly with organizations in this space, 
what are some of the top cybersecurity threats that you see organizations dealing with and ones that are in particularly sort of top of mind for them in the current you know economy and landscape that we're in right now? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's some of the usual actors and usual threats that you would expect. But then I think I think what's really happening right now is a massive shift. So let me let, let me sort of back up. I think on on the usual front, you've got nation state actors and you've got companies typically located in other nation states where, you know, there is a large degree of, for lack of a better word, cyber espionage that is still happening. So there is certainly companies are under attack where people are trying to infiltrate those companies, infiltrate their networks, steal their intellectual property, get insights into their practices or their plans or their strategies. And whether that's being done by nation state actors or being done by other actors at the behest of some of their organizations, et cetera, it's all kind of taking that flavor. So that's been going on for a long time. That's obviously something that has been happening for many decades, but has become more and more digital over the years. I think what's really changed in the last five years, especially, it probably started in the last 10, but it's massively accelerated, is that cybercrime as a business model is obviously on the rise. Ransomware as a business model is now at an all-time high. And a lot of the bad guys, whether their motivations are political or whether their motivations are purely economic, they have realized that you know, ransomware and other forms of just pure disruption are sometimes just as helpful or just as lucrative to them as stealing any sort of intellectual property. And so they are massively interested in disrupting manufacturing um, because of what that does to the country's economy or because of what that does to a particular industry or because of what that even does to a particular company. And it's got either, you know, the political benefits might be just causing disruption and, and sowing concerns around that and creating economic havoc. Or in many cases, it's just an economic model where they're trying to make money as a cyber criminal. And manufacturing is a great target for ransomware because manufacturing is one of the least tolerant industries of any sort of downtime. Everything about manufacturing and the economics of manufacturing go back to the factory floor and it's operating in a consistent, predictable way in order to serve whatever the customers are of that particular entity. And so it really has created this explosion of ransomware and disruptive attacks against manufacturing. Uh, so much so that really over the last five years, manufacturing was always in the top three, typically with medical and financial services as being the top three industries that were being targeted by ransomware and or cybercrime. But really over the last 18 to 24 months, all the data I have seen says that manufacturing has jumped to number one and it has stayed there. So, and I think that's why, right? It's, it's just a, it's a good target if you're looking for an industry that is probably willing to pay ransom, or if you're looking for an industry that's really core to a country's economy and, and you have other political reasons to try and disrupt it. Yeah, I mean, that, that data certainly is in alignment with what we've seen. I think even as recently as Q2 of this year, we saw ransomware overwhelmingly in a sector-by-sector -sector breakdown impacting manufacturing. Of course, that's skewed towards where you know our visibility and data is, is from, but I think certainly in alignment with what we see in other open source reporting and elsewhere. And I think in, in maybe contrast to theft of IP uh, and to the kind of point you made specifically about manufacturing being less tolerant to any sort of downtime, it seems to be a type of cyber threat that is very much front and center for a lot of CEOs and organization leaders 
because of the very clear and direct linkage to, you know, problems with continuity of operations, right? You know, when you've been hit by ransomware, it has a, a more immediate impact on the, the organization's operating. And with manufacturing, it seems like there's a much closer correlation and connection those organizations, those companies can do to trace the actual loss associated with those events, you know, to that particular event, right? And that's harder to do with, with IP theft or some of these other things, but it seems to be, you know, for those reasons, being very much front and center now. Is that what you're seeing? And are you seeing any sort of changes in terms of how CEOs and, and the C-suite sort of responds to or thinks about this problem because of the nature of ransomware we see? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think it, in a lot of cases, and certainly retrospectively, if you're doing forensic accounting, it is very easy to see exactly what the costs were and exactly what the disruption was and put a price tag on that. You know, I think there's there's a slight nuance, though, that I think is really important here, too, which is when you look at manufacturing as an industry, unlike some other service industries, which make up the vast majority of our economy in the United States, you know, the manufacturing landscape includes an IT network layer, but also an OT or an operational technology layer, which we typically define as being the equipment that's used to, to actually make stuff on the factory floor, right? So whatever that looks like. So if you're a manufacturing company, you've got your IT layer, you've got your email systems, you've got your accounting systems, you've got your, you know, your security systems, whatever they may be. But then you've also got this entire operational technology layer. And I think one of the things that's changing to get back to your question around the calculus of the cost, in the past, I think there was a slightly false sense of security that came from the idea that if we're a manufacturer and our email systems go down because of an attack, we can still make stuff. We can still keep our factory running. Yeah, maybe our maybe we're embarrassed and maybe we can't talk to our customers as easily as we could. And maybe, you know, maybe there's some orders that don't make it to us as quickly as they should. But our, you know, our primary operations on our factory floor are not going to be a impacted in our mind by that kind of an attack. And I think one of the things that's really changing is the bad guys figure that out too. And they're clearly starting to target operational technologies. You know, they're targeting specific machines on factory floors and they're targeting disrupting those machines because they know that that is so crucial. While at the same time, Industry 4.0 is forcing manufacturers to bring those assets together. They're, you know, we need connectivity between our factory floor and all of these data lakes and the cloud and other network assets that's going to make it you know, important and possible for us to share data across a manufacturing enterprise because that's how digitization works and that's where kind of the, the next revolution in efficiency and capability is going to come from. But it really does increase your your risks and your attack surfaces when you start to bring all those assets together. So I do think that it used to be the calculus was what happens if my accounting system goes down or my email system goes down, et cetera. But now I think the smarter enterprises are really starting to see how important it is to look at all of their digital assets, including the ones on the factory floor. So you have this convergence then of what's happening in the threat landscape and, and threat actors in the cyber criminal space seeing you know, what has become a very lucrative, you know, type of activity in terms of monetizing victim networks, but then also this digitization of the technology in, on the factory floor that is leading to that now broadening the attack surface. And so manufacturing has this much broader attack surface uh, than, than ever before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, and that is, you know, that's hard for any organization to handle. But, you know, if we pivot a little bit, we can get into what's called the digital divide, right? Which is really the difference between the big guys and the small guys. And that's certainly true across almost any industry, but definitely in manufacturing too. And so these larger companies 
have you know a, a much more serious budget when it comes to cybersecurity, but they also have a much more substantial skill set and talent set when it comes to cyber. And so a large company's ability to understand its attack surfaces and its threat landscape and to figure out how to do the digital convergence more effectively without creating a huge amount of cyber risk, that's really a lot harder for smaller companies to do. But smaller companies are still getting a lot of pressure to move towards digitization and to, and to look at how they operate more efficiently, how they communicate with their suppliers or with their customers you know, through these electronic networks. And so it's really hard if you're a smaller company, not only to do that digital work to actually do the convergence in your factory and to understand how to do it effectively, but to do it and to maintain your cybersecurity can be really, really difficult. And so it's up to all of us to really think about how to help smaller companies you know, stay up to up to date and to understand these threats. And that's certainly true across all industries, but I think it's especially true and especially complex in the manufacturing space. I definitely want to, to return to that topic and, and sort of the relationship between larger entities in the space and the smaller and medium-sized enterprises that make up a lot of American manufacturing. But I wanted to return to when you were talking about, you know, the different types of threats. And again, you know, we totally agree in terms of what <laughs> we've seen over the years uh, in terms of, you know, the, the theft of IP, cyber espionage threats impacting manufacturers has been pretty prevalent uh, long before the modern era of ransomware that we know today. I'm curious in your perspective and, and again, engaging with member organizations, are there particular areas of manufacturing where that has become more of a concern, theft of IP, where maybe they're more sensitive to that? I would imagine very R&D heavy sectors within manufacturing they care a lot more about that and are more sensitive to that particular issue. But what's kind of happening in that space in, in terms of the concerns organizations have? No, I think that's true. I mean, I think, you know, there's always been this correlation between, you know, which industries have a lot of trade secrets and a lot of IP to protect and, you know, how do they protect it and how likely are they to be a target? You know, semiconductors is probably a great current example because there's a lot of activity in the semiconductor space. There's always been a lot of IP in that space and there's always been a high degree of secrecy and a high degree of cybersecurity activity around protecting those assets. But with the, you know, enhanced political activities recently around that, whether it's the CHIPS Act in the US or whether it's concerns about what's happening geopolitically in Asia around where chips usually get made and where they're shipped from and, and what's going to happen there over the next five to 10 years or whatever time horizon you want to put on it. You know, there's a lot of interest there. But then, I mean, there's other areas too. There's, there's chemicals. Chemicals have always had a really high level of IP and R&D around them, as well as safety concerns, you know, rightfully so, around how do you protect your assets, but how do you also protect the safety of your chemical facilities and the safety of the surrounding communities? You know, and there's other specific, whether it's pharmaceutical, pharmaceuticals always had a lot of IP. Obviously, there's no shortage of that, and there's no shortage of R&D happening in the pharmaceutical industry. So there are particular industries that have always been more prone to that and where, you know, I think I think they see that as a cost of doing business and they understand that protecting their IP has always been one of their core foundational aspects from day one. I mean, I think I think the other side of that coin, though, that we can't ignore is the fact that ransomware is the great equalizer. And so many small manufacturers that we talk to, the number one thing I, I'm trying to get through and the number one myth I want to dispel is that a lot of small manufacturers believe that if they have no IP to protect, if what they do is not patented or unique or trade secret in nature, and they feel like they do something that's pretty commoditized, maybe they make screws and fasteners, or maybe they make mattresses or whatever it is they might make, 
they feel like, you know, cyber is not a big deal for them. And they feel like they don't really have any risk because nobody wants to steal their secrets. They don't have any to steal. And what we've seen with ransomware is, you know, that's absolutely not true. Their ransomware risk is just as high as anyone else's because they can't tolerate downtime. And if, if they haven't taken the steps to secure their networks and their, and their equipment, then they're going to be even more prone to falling victim to ransomware. And so that message is one that we're trying to get out loud and clear. So we have these these different sort of, you know, two primary motivations of, of threat activity facing the manufacturing sector. IP theft, you know, the longstanding problem that that's been. We saw examples of where you reference pharmaceuticals. Um, I think that was an industry that we saw heavily targeted over particularly the, the early and, and middle part of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Actors from every nation state were involved in some way in, in, in some some different capacity, right? We saw everything from academic institutions, contract resource organizations, pharmaceutical entities themselves, even public health entities, all targeted around some of these similar campaigns where, again, who you're doing business with, who you're connected to was was kind of a driver in shaping what that threat activity looked like. And of course, the problem of ransomware today. And so we've kind of touched on, you brought up the the fact you have a lot of smaller and medium-sized enterprises that make up the manufacturing base uh, in the United States today. And we're also in the sort of, you know, economic conditions coming out of COVID. There's been disruptions of the physical supply chains. There's increased economic pressure on, on entities in the space. So alongside that and against that backdrop of ransomware, all right, what are some of the particular challenges facing those smaller institutions as they approach this problem? And they say, okay, I understand maybe that I am more of a target than I thought about previously, but there's still a problem with resourcing and there's still a problem where getting access to, to talent, getting access to, to resources to fund cybersecurity programs can be still very much a challenge for these smaller institutions. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I think, so what I just said basically kind of correlates to the first part of that problem. And the first part of the problem is a lot of those smaller businesses are making inaccurate threat or risk assessments. And they have a, a very understated idea of what the likelihood is that they might get hit with some sort of an attack. So that's the first step. First step is make them understand they really are vulnerable. It really could happen to them. If it did happen to them, it really could be an existential threat to their business. And it's not something that they should be taking lightly or assuming that it's such a, a small or infinitesimal chance of happening to them that it's not worth you know taking some some measures and spending some money in order to protect themselves. So that's the first step. But even when you get them to that place, when they realize they need to do something, they understand the threat landscape, you know, clearly the two issues that everyone is having in cyber right now, and it's especially acute for the smaller businesses, is the talent issue and just the the budgetary impacts of, of what that takes. So from a talent standpoint, do they have the talent on staff to understand you know, what they should do, what they could do, what their risks are, which systems they currently have that need to be addressed. Do they understand all the acronyms at play? Do they understand the different threat vectors? You know, how are they comprehending that? They're probably not, you know, if they're a small business, maybe 10, $20 million in revenue, which makes up an enormous amount of the U.S. supply chain and the U.S. manufacturing base. By most measures, it's about 200,000 companies out of the 250,000 that are sort of in that 50 million or less in revenues. And so, you know, how are, if they've just got a CEO and a CFO as their two major C-suite folks, how are they understanding, you know, cyber? How are they understanding technology? Maybe they've outsourced their entire IT stack. So how are they doing that? How are they getting their arms around what that really should be? So the talent that it takes to do that and the ability to comprehend it 
is not a small challenge. And then once you get to that point, maybe you've got a great IT vendor, maybe you've got some sort of innate understanding of technology issues, and maybe you're like me and you have this weird career where you spent some time in various technology companies and doing weird technology things, then you're still a small company with a small budget by comparison. And how are you figuring out how to spend that budget and where to apply that budget so that you're getting the most bang for your buck? You know, there's hundreds of options out there in terms of vendors and hardware and solutions. And so, you know, and if you're a manufacturer, you've got this especially complex environment with IT and OT intersecting and so forth. So, you know, that's not easy either. So really, we're working on all of those things. Us and our partners and our large company partners especially are really trying to figure out solutions for all of those things. Help them get an accurate understanding of the threats they're facing. Help them get an understanding of what that really means to them and what the terms mean and what the threat vectors really mean and what sorts of things they might experience and what to do about it. And then help them figure out what's the best bang for the buck or how do they, how do they go about budgeting for that and, and figuring out how much to apply against it. So I think that's where this conversation naturally goes is what does that currently look like, you know, in the manufacturing ecosystem where you have more well-resourced, larger manufacturing entities that are still reliant upon or using a supplier, some of the smaller entities or their partners with, and there's, I think this, this, you know, reasoning um, and understanding that especially things like SolarWinds, you know, brought to the forefront and that who your vendors are and security flaws or vulnerabilities there, them getting compromised can have an impact downstream on you. And then, of course, I think in the manufacturing space, not just, you know, that being an, an entry or vector point for security problems, but if they do deal with a ransomware incident and if they have downtime and they're a supplier of yours, that has a direct impact on your business. So what is the, the sort of relationship or ecosystem right now in which those larger players are maybe trying to address this problem, you know, address some of the, the resourcing and, and shortfalls there with some of the smaller entities, realizing that there needs to be some sort of, you know, rising tide to, I was about to say, secure all boats, but... You essentially know what uh, how that how that phrase goes, but in this particular context, you know what are we seeing uh, in in the ecosystem? So the first thing I'll say is something you just mentioned, which I think is a really important thread to pull on, which is you know ten years ago, large manufacturers dealing with their smaller supply chain partners, usually their suppliers who are you know delivering to them raw materials or components. If you go back ten years, the biggest cybersecurity concern they had was connectivity. So they were trying to open up their electronic systems to let those suppliers connect to them, you know, maybe via EDI or FTP transfers or maybe via, you know, some other mechanisms or whatever. And their biggest concern was that direct electronic connectivity was going to create a risk for them. So there was a risk that somebody could penetrate one of their suppliers and then work their way through the network and get into their network and do some damage or steal some some uh, secrets, etc. And there were many examples of that being a legitimate threat vector. So it wasn't like it wasn't happening. It was actually happening. And that was by far the biggest concern. I think one of the things that's changed for the big companies in the last, again, the last five years especially, is with just in time and with you know with lean manufacturing and how that works and the efficiencies that have come with all the supply chain redesign and everything else most large manufacturers can barely tolerate any real disruptions in their supply chain and they have teams of people that do nothing but monitor you know all of those shipping lanes and all of the logistics and all of the ETAs and delivery dates to make sure that that stuff reaches them when it's supposed to reach them and if one of their crucial suppliers goes down with a ransomware attack it can cause massive, massive havoc on their business and serious financial implications for that larger, that larger customer of that smaller business. So it doesn't have anything in that case to do with 
you know, anybody using the net, the network connectivity to launch an attack. It's purely a supply chain disruption at that point, but it can have really massive implications. So that's really changed the calculus for large companies. Large companies, mostly in the past, worried about, you know, what's our firewall positioning? How do we allow smaller companies to connect to us? How do we audit those smaller companies and make sure they're secure enough before they connect to us? How do we figure that out? And now they're realizing it's not just a luxury of only doing that with people that are directly connected to them electronically. It's also this issue of who are my most important suppliers? What are my most critical supplies? And how do I make sure that they have enough cybersecurity not to have a massive disruption of their business, even if they don't have any serious connectivity into me or there's nothing sensitive happening connectivity wise? And that's put a real strain on larger companies. Larger companies, by and large, want to be helpful and they want to help secure their supply chain partners because it is absolutely in their best interest for all these reasons. However, they are unbelievably busy just protecting their own you know, boundaries and just worrying about all the attacks they're facing and managing their own cybersecurity teams. And of course, it's always you know, a little bit frustrating sometimes for smaller companies to have a larger company try to tell them what to do or offer them, you know, what the large company thinks is assistance, but the small company feels is oversight or interference or whatever. And so there's certainly human elements to this where you have to really manage those relationships and figure out what's the right way to go in and help a smaller company. What sort of help do they really need? How can that be seen as help and not interference? And so the best larger companies are exploring all of that right now. And I think at some point it's going to get into contract terms and it's going to get into real, you know, carrot and stick sort of approaches. Right now, I think it's mostly carrot. The larger companies, I think, are hesitant to do too much on the stick side of that equation. But eventually, you know, their boards and their shareholders and stakeholders are going to ask them to be more draconian and more specific in their contract language and things like that in order to really put more pressure on their supply chain partners. And I think what we've seen with all the supply chain disruptions of the last 18 months which are due to many, many, many factors, cybersecurity being pretty small among them compared to what's happening globally. But it's certainly making them more aware of and more concerned about the resilience of their supply chain. And so as they look at those partners and they look at cybersecurity across their supply chain, they're absolutely looking at which suppliers are the most critical to us, which things do they provide us that we can't live without, and how do we add supply chain and cybersecurity into that conversation in addition to whatever other steps we were taking to make sure that that supplier had some resilience around them. Are there any things in particular that you're seeing that seem to be either that organizations are doing more of or that seem to be working especially well when it comes to that relationship of the larger organizations and smaller ones and sort of helping provide maybe more resourcing I'm thinking of everything from maybe increased information sharing and, you know, having some sort of uh, ongoing information exchange amongst partners and suppliers, tabletop exercises, things of that nature that seem to be maybe more useful, maybe more of the carrot side, you know, in terms of trying to assist or reduce risk uh, with those suppliers. Yeah. And again, it really depends on size, right? So let's say you're a $10 billion manufacturer and you've got thousands of suppliers in your supply chain. Some of those suppliers are going to be 500 million billion dollar entities. Some of them will be just as large as you. They just happen to be in a different part of the business making something that, that you use. So if you're dealing with, you know, fairly large companies, then everything you just said is definitely happening. So there is information sharing happening. There are tabletop exercises happening. There are joint tabletop exercises where 
whether, you know, they're looking at what happens if one of us gets hit, what do we do to help the others and to make sure it doesn't spread or to make sure we all understand it and get information. A lot of that happens in ISACs, right? So ISACs are definitely, you know, some of, some of the different entities within manufacturing particular industries. Most of the ISACs are more industry specific, like auto or, or whatever. Um, so that is definitely happening. The problem is when you get if you're a $10 billion entity and you're looking at your thousands of suppliers, some of them are going to be small. Some of them are going to be $20, $50 million entities. In a lot of cases, information sharing isn't really what they need. They don't have anyone to receive it and they don't have anyone to act on it. Or tabletop exercises, same thing. They're shaking their head like, I'm not really sure what this does or who to even invite to the table for this exercise. So it really does have to be more remedial than that and more grassroots than that. So it's really about trying to go to them as a partner and say, what are your current biggest needs? How are you understanding where you stand now from a cybersecurity maturity standpoint or what your threat, your threat landscape looks like? And how can we help you get more secure than you are today, whatever that looks like, because anything that we can do to make you more secure is beneficial. So let's start with wherever you are and figure out how to make you more secure. There's other partners in this landscape like NIST. So, you know, NIST has their MEP network. They do a nice cybersecurity framework. There are NIST offices in every state in the country, uh, MEP offices, excuse me, that are part of NIST. They're in every state in the country. And so NIST stands for the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They're part of the Department of Commerce. MEPs are the Manufacturing Extension Partnerships that they run in every state. They work with small manufacturers all over the country and they do a lot of really good work around cybersecurity and trying to get a better handle on it if you're a small manufacturer. So that's one place that you know some small companies start. There's a lot of our other partners and vendors in this space too. But yeah, if you're a large company, the best ones are really just trying to figure out how do they meet those small suppliers where they are and how do they help them get more secure than they are today, whether that's sharing actual software solutions or hardware solutions, whether that's sending some cybersecurity talent out into their facility to actually help them do some sort of an audit and to get their arms around some of their assets. Things like that are absolutely happening, and some of it needs to be, you know, starting at that sort of basic grassroots level in order to really be effective. When you look at the future of the threat landscape for manufacturing, um, and, you know, and assuming some of these things that, again, have been continuing for some time now, like ransomware, um, that show no signs of slowing, or theft of IP, right? As we continue to innovate and develop new technologies here, that's going to be of interest to a wide range of, of global threat actors. Um, and then that data will become a target for that. But as you see sort of the increased challenges that it seems like manufacturing is under, you know, in the United States right now, um, the economic conditions, the supply chain disruptions, as you noted, are not even, cyber's not even a, a strong component of that. But you have all these strong headwinds that, that uh, organizations in the manufacturing space, um, you know, are dealing with and everything that we've discussed around smaller organizations and resourcing there. So... I guess looking forward, what's kind of your outlook on some of the challenges and also maybe opportunities in this space? Yeah, I think, I mean, the opportunities are kind of infinite, right? I mean, there are a lot of opportunities in this space. It's just a matter of figuring out how do we, how do we eat the elephant, right? How do we figure out how to, how to do this one step at a time and get somewhere useful in terms of what that looks like? I think, you know, I think there's a couple interesting things happening. Number one, on the talent side, there's a lot of people trying to create more cyber talent, which could be useful for sure. So whether that's college programs, whether that's 
non-traditional programs around helping get you know people get more cybersecurity talent and figuring out how to leverage people differently. Um, you know, sharing cybersecurity talent has been a really interesting model that some people are still trying to implement. It really doesn't need to be competitive if you're if you're a bunch of small manufacturers and you need cybersecurity talent, but none of you can afford it yourselves, there are ways to do it as sort of a co-op and look at how do you share cybersecurity talent. Um, just like you might all hire the same accounting firm to do your bookkeeping, or you might all hire you know, some other service providers. Cyber could be that way too. And so there's no reason that everybody has to try and poach talent from one another if they could be finding a more shared model for that. And then I think, you know, Software is obviously going to continue to be a huge part of this. And I think one of the areas that is still a real challenge as we move manufacturing into industry 4.0 and into the next industrial revolution, which is driven by all of this digitization, there is still a serious lack of standardization. And that lack of standardization is absolutely creating many more threat vectors than we should probably have. Yes, this is a long and difficult, you know, conversion into the digital landscape for manufacturing, but we're making it more difficult because of all of the proliferation of different approaches and different protocols and different standards and different languages and everything else that's happening in those digital layers. There really has not been much standardization at all. And so when you're looking at Internet of Things and how do all those devices talk to each other and when you're looking at other software solutions and, you know, typically manufacturers have some pretty standard software needs, you know, whether it's CRM or ERP or other systems that, you know, are in those layers. Um, there really has not been much of a standardization effort, and that is definitely creating a threat landscape that's probably more porous than any of us would like it to be, because through nobody's specific fault, but just the fact that you've got so many vendors and so many different approaches, you're ending up with you know a, a landscape that is hard to nail down and, and harder to secure than, than we would probably like. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in those spaces as well to get more secure and to do some things differently as we figure out what does a true digital manufacturing landscape look like five to 10 years from now. Yeah, and you would hope that, you know, in architecting, you know, bringing in new architecture for, for some of that, that we would avoid some of the challenges we've had in the past with poor architecture and the sort of security loopholes that ha that has bred. But yeah, I think it's going to be a continuous problem going forward in the adoption of new OT technologies, new IoT technologies. Yeah, we've covered a lot here, but any sort of final thoughts that, you know, maybe for individuals, and this has been a fascinating, I think, you know, window into what goes on in the sector and, and some of the problems and challenges there. But anything in particular you think is maybe less well understood or, you know, just is very important for people to understand about the manufacturing industry and space and some of the challenges that it faces around cybersecurity? You know, I think pre-pandemic, I would have said not a lot of people understand how critical manufacturing is in their, in their life and how much they rely on it every day without ever thinking about it unless they work in manufacturing. And, you know, the vast majority of Americans don't work in manufacturing. We've got 12 to 13 million that do directly. But really now I think the pandemic has taught us all some really important lessons about how much we rely on manufacturers and how important it was that they were deemed as part of the critical infrastructure during the pandemic so that they could continue manufacturing all of the things that we absolutely rely on day to day. Uh, and I think that, you know, continuing to remember that and understanding why manufacturing 
is maybe unique and different from a service business, both in terms of what it delivers to our lives and how we rely on it without ever thinking about it and how we go to the grocery store or Target or Walmart and, and see the things on the shelf that we expect to see every day without fail. None of that is guaranteed and none of that is easy to do, especially in times of massive disruption. And then, um, you know, I think the other aspect is that manufacturing in a way that probably a lot of people don't understand also plays an enormous role in our economy. And so the, the multiplier effect of manufacturing jobs and how that's, you know, how that feeds into other jobs and other careers and other economic impacts in every single community around the United States is hard to overstate, but it has the number one multiplier effect of any industry. So every dollar that's spent on a manufacturing job and paying a manufacturing worker creates something like a dollar forty to a dollar fifty in the rest of the economy. So all of those diners and dry cleaners and and every other business that you can think of is getting a boost from what manufacturing does. And so it's important for us to think about how to defend that and how to make sure that it's as secure as we need it to be so that it can continue to do what it does for all of us, which so many of us are not even aware of consciously and don't really think about. Yeah, well, I wholeheartedly agree in terms of the, the realization I think many of us had of just how dependent we are on, on the manufacturing that takes place here. And I think also, uh, you know, a lot of the gratitude that we have for, for that, um, those, you know, what are often very intricate supply chains and, and uh, the fragility that sometimes goes along with that and the people that keep it up and running every day. Exactly. Todd, this has been, again, a, a fantastic window uh, into this industry and, and vertical. Uh, thanks for coming on and, and sharing your insight and time. Um, we will include a link to your, your website, to your organization's website, where they can go and learn more about the work that you're doing. But again, fascinating went into what's happening and, and thank you for your time today. Thanks, Luke. Great to be with you and, and the Mandiant team. I really appreciate it. Take care.